From New Hampshire Public Radio and the Howe Library in Hanover, New Hampshire, you're listening to Check This Out, a new literary series where we dive deeply into the works of emerging and diverse authors you may not have discovered yet. I'm your host, Rachel Barenbaum, author of the novel Atomic Anna, and I am thrilled to be able to share these conversations with you over the next few weeks. Tanya James is an associate professor of English at George Mason University, who has published several novels and short stories. She's a first-generation Indian-American, and her latest novel, Loot, was long-listed for the National Book Award. I had the pleasure of speaking to her before the nomination, before all the hoopla around this incredible novel. Buckle up, she's about to give us a front-row seat to 18th and 19th century imperialism, as seen through the eyes of an artisan, a toy maker, who begins his journey in 1794 in Mysore, India. Tanya, thank you so much for being on the show today. Thank you, Rachel. It's totally my pleasure. This novel, Loot, this gorgeous book, takes us to 1794, Mysore, India. And you bring us the story of a boss who starts as a woodworker. He loves making toys, but he's stuck in his father's workshop making furniture. He's plucked out of there to become an apprentice to a French clockmaker, Monsieur Deleuze. And what we see from there is basically his world opens up, right? He starts to build this tiger, this automaton for uh, Tipu Sultan. And um, we get just to this amazing story. He opens up to a larger world, to the larger palace, to the city, to the continent, right? He travels to France. We see history. We see the horrors of colonialism. We see love. But what I really love about this book and why I couldn't put it down is because you tell us all of this on a very personal level. You bring the larger history book to Abbas himself and this big question of what does it mean to leave a mark? What is art? What is history? And it's one thing to read about colonialism and art in a history book, but to read about it in a story where I'm cheering for a character, where I'm crying for a character, right? This is beautiful. It brings it to life for me, and it's why I loved this book. So thank you so much. Um, I wanted to start off by asking you to set the scene for us and tell us about, about this moment in history when we start the book. We're in 1794, Mysore, India. What are we looking at? Where are we? Um, This is a really, well, first of all, thank you so much for that introduction. And I'm so moved by how much you were moved. Um, I, so to set up the, to set up the novel a little bit, this moment in time, it starts in 1792, uh, roughly. And it was, uh, to me, um, a really interesting moment in the history of British Empire and, and colonialism, because it was really this hinge moment where, at this point, the British East India Company only controlled about nine percent of the of India, and then mainly in the north and the east. So only nine percent of territory. And but they really were hell bent on getting control of the south, which is Mysore Kingdom is in the south. And so, um, and so they were the only things, the only forces that were really standing in their way um, were the Marathas. Um, and then Tipu, Tipu uh, and Hyder Ali's um, Mysore kingdom. And so it's sort of this moment where until now, the East India Company has been sort of like a trading company. And but then but then after this moment, they really turn into the aggressive um, on the road to the, becoming the aggressive superpower they were going to become. And so I didn't realize that when I started writing the novel. But the more I researched, I thought, oh, wow, this is actually, you know, we learned so little about it. 
Um, well, I learned very little about it when I was a you know student of history or you know learning social studies and the history of colonialism in high school. But I, it, it was a crucial turning point um, for for the world, really. Tanya, I love that, that you're dropping us into this turning point, this tipping point in India, where we're going from a sort of gentle colonialism, if there is such a thing, right, to this harsher moment of war. Um, And I thought you laid that out really well. If you could just read this section for us, please, that starts Tipu's Kingdom. Tipu's Kingdom barely survived the most recent war with the English, and talk of still another is always on the horizon. The people never know who is coming from where to take what from whom. All they can do is submit to power each time it changes hands, each time the powerful decide to redecorate. This one wants a new calendar, that one wants his face struck on a coin. With every alteration, large and small, the ground unfirms itself beneath their feet, making it nearly impossible for anyone to leave a lasting mark. At the moment, Abbas has no interest in leaving a mark. All he wants is to stay out of trouble, though it is perhaps a little late for that. I love that section because we're right in the beginning of the book, and already you are introducing us to this idea of leaving a mark. And I thought for me that was really one of the overall themes. The most important part is this question of how do we leave a mark? And you introduce us to Abbas, who has no interest in leaving a mark because he's a young kid, he's a teenager at this point, making toys. So can you tell us about Abbas? Yeah, Abbas is um, from a family of woodworkers, so probably somewhat uh, lower class, um, a, a Muslim family, and everyone has been doing the same work for generations, but he has that sort of artistic spirit, I think, that one trait I think of as being common to most artists, which is curiosity and a kind of inability to sort of fall in line in terms of what he's supposed to make. Um, And so he starts making toys, just he's always been carving figurines and toys and, um, and these things, for better or worse, get get the attention of um, Tipu Sultan. Um, And so at first, he sees this, uh, his family sees this as a liability, but then it sort of becomes obvious to him that there is somewhere, there's somewhere he can go with his toys and his creations, that there's more he could be and more he could do. And he sees that in his mentor, the person who will become his mentor, um, Lucien Dulez, who is a French clockmaker at the court of Tipu Sultan, but he also makes automata, or these automatons, if you don't know, are these, um, for people who don't know, are were precursors to robots, basically. They were, you know, um, these mechanized um, humans or creatures or things that were made to resemble human movement. Um, and so he's just really um, dazzled by that. And and he just um, sort of comes into this awareness of himself as an artist. And also, you know, I think what much of what drives him is that desire, as you said, to to leave a mark, um, to leave something of himself behind, which was, yeah, it was this question of erasure was something I kept thinking about as I was researching and as I was writing. Yeah. So, um, but I want to stick just for a minute here with this idea of him, his hobby is toys, right? And his parents and everyone, his mom wants him to be a scribe eventually, right? And his dad wants him to focus on furniture, but he's whittling toys all the time. Um, and toys are sort of disarming. You think of kids, right? Little little kids playing with toys. But here they are his ticket out in a sense, right? And, and there's sort of a dark side to his toys. So why did you choose toys? 
Well, there, there was a practical reason, which was when I was first researching this area. There's actually um, Tipu Sultan, the ruler of Mysore, had brought toy makers from, I think it was Iran, but um, this kind of group of toy makers because he was really charmed by these toys. And so there is a long history of toy makers in Mysore, that base, um, mainly based in Chanapatna, the small village. And they've been there for hundreds of years, and they make these incredibly just whimsical, beautiful, bright wooden toys. They're all wooden and the dyes are natural. And I just remember seeing, watching videos of these toys. And, you know, there's a way in which when you watch a toy being made or see, you know, you see a toy, using a toy, on, and, you know, and your own, it just turns you into a child. Um, and it kind of unlocks a sort of wonder that I think as an adult is harder and harder to access. Um, but that just seemed to me, immediately it was an object that was immediately emotional because of what it does to the person who's using it um and i just love the, the whimsy was another thing i was after with this novel like i wanted i wanted people to be delighted by what they're reading even as we're carrying sort of heavy subjects here with colonialism and war and you know migration i wanted i wanted the whimsy of the novel to be a counterpoint to those things and toys just immediately kind of moving toys hand crank toys all of that felt like you know a way to sort of balance that 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 seriousness so abbas is you know becomes a um, an apprentice to monsieur dulez and he is called in to make this tiger this famous tiger. So tell us about the tiger. So this is a real-life automaton that is currently in the Victorian Albert Museum in London. It's a six-foot-long wooden tiger that is mauling the throat of a prone English soldier. And um, and his, you know, when you turned a hand crank, back in the day when it worked, um, the tiger would grunt and the soldier would sort of groan. Uh, and there's like an or there was an organ inside the tiger and you could it, there would be organ music in the background. And um, so it, it was a real thing that he commissioned. And, and as you can probably tell, you know, he it, it really encapsulated how much he hated the British East India Company. I mean, he had British people at the court, actually, um, you know, different kinds of um, engineers and things. But but as an entity, he hated the British East India Company. And that really kind of encapsulated that um, contempt. But also, I just thought when I saw it, it's so it's actually kind of funny. And it's kind of, you know, there's a there's a sort of um, there's a kind of um, irreverence to it and absurdity to it as well. So all of those things, I just loved the spirit of this object. And it, it just kept it just kept like I just kept thinking about it. And I've, I've since talked to other kind of colonial scholars, and they nobody can think of like, uh, you know, people are like, that's, that's kind of um, the only art object they can think of that is made by the colonial subject with that kind of um, humor and, um, you know, uh, kind of sinister quality to it. And so I just think it's kind of exceptional for its time. I mean, there probably were other things like it, but this is what I guess this is what we have left. If you're just joining us, I'm Rachel Barenbaum. My guest today is Tanya James, and you're listening to Check This Out on New Hampshire Public Radio. We're talking about Tanya's new novel, Loot. Let's talk a little bit more about this tiger. Um, there is an amazing description that you give about it. Um, there's, I guess, a smaller version of it that Jean has, a character that we'll talk about in just a minute. And um, she describes it as painted in juvenile colors, yet mature in subject. 
such that she felt herself maturing as she pondered the agony of the man fated to lie forever between death and life, betwixt platform and predator, a predator that was both frightening and alluring. She wished to intervene, but the carving was all of a piece and denied intervention. I love that description because, again, you have this disarming idea that it's a toy, and yet it is brutal, this tiger, right? It literally has his teeth in the British soldier's neck. Mm-hmm. I, yeah. I thank you for reading that um, section. It had me thinking about what inspired it. I was thinking about there is like there's this um, little miniature statue in my parents' house, and it's of um, two kind of tiger cubs kind of on top of a two tigers taking down an elephant and I always I used to stare at that thing and just feel couldn't figure out who I felt more for because I thought these are tiger cubs but it's also I feel for the elephant and just I, I guess I just it just these were little ways in which I was constantly trying to find connections between myself and the characters who biographically are very far from my own experience. And the only way I could do it was by kind of layering my own memories and trying to access a specific kind of emotion and a specific kind of contemplation and sort of giving it to a character. So um, I had forgotten about that passage, but yeah, it takes me back to child, my own childhood, actually. I mean, this is really where I'm talking about how you access history through the eyes of a boss in this book so effectively, because we are pulled into the story, but actually there is the history here, right? And so um, the next time we see the tiger after, um, you know, the first sort of foray into the world when it's introduced, we see it at the siege after Tipu Sultan is killed. Um, and I thought it was a horrific scene where the um, soldiers, the mercenaries, everyone who has been employed or forced to fight against Tipu, right, um, line up and they are um, basically told you can now each have something from his treasures, right, and, and like basically line up and take something here. Um, and we see the tiger again. So can you tell us about this moment and um, introduce us to Colonel Selwyn? This was a moment, so there were four wars that Tipu Sultan fought against the British, and this was the final war, which actually was barely a war. It was it was done in like several hours, maybe half a day, where the British basically came through um, and destroyed the capital city and killed thousands and thousands of people. And what followed in the day, the days after, it was just a, a like a, a mass kind of looting of um, everything, you know, books, um, um, you know, objects, art objects, also, you know, massive levels of sexual assault, just looting and plundering in every possible way. And at some point, the general, I think General Harris, one of the generals had to had to kind of put a stop to it. So he, he had several of his own men executed. And then they then they set up this sort of system, this committee, and they had tables and where people were coming up and saying, requesting this and requesting that and, you know, assessing their rank and therefore basing what you get on what you what your rank or what you did. Um, in the siege, I guess, but um, I I just thought it was this this idea. I think there's a line in the novel that says, "Plunder is chaos, prize is organized," and I just thought it was a a really kind of absurd idea that if we just organize it, if we just organize ourselves, and if everybody lines up, then it's somehow legal and fine. Um, and so I just thought I'll lean into the absurdity here a little bit, and I. Um, wrote a scene about just these people standing in line. And one of the people standing in line 
is a guy named Colonel Horace Selwyn, who has fought in the in the wars and and um, he he's standing there and trying to figure out what his wife would like the best. And most people wanted the jewels. Uh, which they would like kind of take and reset into some other necklace or something. And he, ha his wife is somebody very different from other people. She's into romance and she's into the Orient, quote unquote. And she's in, she sort of has this like taste for Orientalist art. And so he, um, when he sets his eyes on Tipu's tiger, the automaton, he knows that even though it's just wood and glue, it's not, it doesn't have inherent value the way jewels do. He knows that's what his wife will want. And so he gets this object and that's how the object Tipu's tiger makes its way um, to England. In real life, the object did, you know, was taken back to England, but it wasn't in private hands. It was in, it was taken to the India house, um, which was a kind of, um, I think, uh, not, not a, quite a museum, but it was a, it was a public space. But, um, but yeah, I, I, so this was the way in which I thought I'm going to get this object across the ocean. I'm going to give it to this one character. But the scene, right, you set it up. I mean, so imagine these soldiers, these men are in line waiting for their treasure, and they're literally dead bodies all around, right? The smell is horrific. You describe it so, um, you know, perfectly, I thought. You know, there's blood everywhere, and they're like pushing and elbowing to get a ruby, Right. Or this tiger. I mean, talk about the horrors of war and colonialism. You just encapsulated it right there. And um, and also, you know, the brutality against women. And you wrote it with this spare, haunting prose. And I just wanted to read one of my favorite um, of your few sentences in here about it. You wrote of the women, some scream and some don't. Some proffer jewels in exchange for immunity. One for whom it's too late to proffer anything staggers around a corner, clutching the torn drawstring of her skirt. Know that she will survive this night and many to come. What will sustain her is the story that will form in her mind in which she is not the spoils of war, but a fallen warrior. Um, so powerful because in just a few sentences, I think you've created the scene, the chaos and the horrors. And I just, I cried when I read that. I just thought it was really powerful in so few sentences. Um, so um, I wanted to ask you about how you did um, some of the research to really come to these details and find out a little bit more about, you know, the moment of the siege and what was happening, you know, versus how much you had to imagine was going on just in this one scene. I, I don't think I ever found any account of that siege that was from the perspective of anyone um, on the losing side, so no one from Mysore, from the Mysore side. It was all accounts of um, British soldiers or you know people on the um, British East India Company side who had who had been through it, and so therefore it it was it was sort of a very bird's eye view of things, and also like kind of written in the aftermath. So there were just few like small details that I seized on, and one that I loved was that as Tipu was dying. Or maybe right after he died, someone snipped off a corner of his mustache. And, you know, the, the sort of superior officer who saw this was really appalled. But the but the um, the officer who did that, the soldier who did that was like, well, everyone's doing it. And how that one little piece of mustache attained value and becomes a sort of iconic kind of representation of this this legendary tyrant. And this um, I I just there were just kind of very small details like that. But in terms of 
one of the things I did do eventually, because of the pandemic, I couldn't actually go to Mysore when I wanted to go. And so I did all of my research in books. And then finally, I did go to Mysore. I did kind of visit these places. They have a uh, a marker where he fell, where Tipu Sultan fell. And it just, um, I think the 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 what that gave me was a sort of uh, sense of how small how how small a space how small these spaces are where people are fighting and how I in my mind somehow I, maybe because of war movies I just think of these big battles as being huge huge landscapes but these are these are sort of very kind of tighter spaces and somehow that made it even more haunting and also that I was paying attention to the sort of trees that were around and kind of the only things who probably are still alive and were witness to these kind of this bloodshed. But um, I really had to kind of imagine my way into this space um, because I didn't have a whole lot to go on in terms of what I could get a hold of with my reading. So um, interesting, not surprising that mostly uh, the only history that you had to go on was written by the British. <laughs> we are going to talk about more about the sources of history and how we record and who we record history when we come back. I'm Rachel Barenbaum. You're listening to Check This Out on NHPR. We're going to take a short break. We'll be back in just a moment with my guest, Tanya James. We're talking about her new amazing novel, Loot. Stay with us. I'm Rachel Barenbaum. You're listening to Check This Out on NHPR. I'm here with my guest, Tanya James. We're talking about her new novel, Loot. I want to dive into this question of history, who writes history, what, who decides what is history, um, because you, we were just talking about the siege of um, Tipu Sultan's last fort, right, and the end of that war in Mysore, India. And you noted that the sources that you had are primarily British. And in the book, you um, give an account of this battle several different times, you know, in artwork, in different ways. And we see history changing um, versus what Abbas, the main character, actually saw. And so this question of who decides what is history is very haunting, and you bring that to life. So can you talk a little bit about that and how you thought about it as you were writing this book? Well, at first I was a little bit um, intimidated by the lack of um, historical records from, well, there are historical records, but, but the perspectives I wanted, I couldn't find. And so at first I thought maybe this isn't the right subject for me, um, because I just associated historical fiction with like highly, highly meticulously researched, um, works like people who, who are like, like Hilary Mantel, who I love, Jim Shepard, Andrea Barrett. These are people who, who really spend so much time on research. And I, I just thought, um, I, how am I going to gain the authority to write about these things? But then I, I just, I just kept being drawn to this material anyway, and I just sort of, uh, sort of liberated myself from this idea that history has to be um, kind of so, so rooted in fact, and instead trying to hew towards the emotional truth um, of these characters. I, I found it really helpful to think about it um, after I listened to an interview with the poet and writer, uh, fiction writer, um, Ocean Vuong, and he was describing a poem that he had written about 
Saigon or the fall of Saigon. And he said, I'm not writing as a witness of history. I'm writing um, sort of like um, Homer writing 400 years after the Trojan War. I'm writing, I'm building a mythology out of the history I come from. And so I just thought that was a beautiful way to think about that historical fiction is not has doesn't have to be rooted in 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 facts and and you know rooted in witness it it is a way you can think about it as a way of stepping into the void with your own imagination and and sort of imagining other possibilities um and so that was basically i that i felt like that's what i'm doing and so um that gave me a lot of freedom in the way i was thinking about it too I love that. Um, but of course, one of the reasons that I thought your book really, um, you know, was so amazing and really drew me in so intensely was because not only are you asking what is history, but you are asking what is art and how do we leave a mark in particular in relation to Abbas, right, and him being an artist. So we pick up the story. Abbas is there at the siege of Tipu, right? Um, and he is um, sort of right knocked over. He spends three days unconscious, and then he staggers up um, and finds his way onto a ship, right? And we are sort of are launched to the next portion here. Um, and um, Abbas, on his the next portion of his life, when he's at sea, um, he has this amazing, amazing quote. You write, um, you must understand, I did not come through such misery in order to serve others. Now I serve myself. So take us through where is Abbas, right? He's after this battle. He's survived. He's getting on the boat. What's happening? Um, he is, He yeah, he um, sort of um, miraculously gets to go on an East India Company ship as the assistant to the carpenter. So he has basically been hanging around these dockyards um, and just trying to convince someone to let him get on the ship because basically he had this, he has this idea that if he goes to England and if he can just find his former mentor, the clockmaker, Monsieur Dulez, Dulez will, as as Dulez had promised, Dulez will mentor him and apprentice him so that so that Abbas himself can also become a maker of automata, automatons, and which is what he wants to do. And um, and so this is how he he sort of gets aboard the ship, uh, which is you know I, I at first I, I was had such a hard time trying to imagine how a a kid of such humble beginnings would you know find his way across the ocean. But um, I think it's I think it it helped me to think about this book, this novel as a kind of picaresque where a character is just going from one adventure to the other to the next. And and I think also, you know, what's driving him is, as you said, this intensity of desire, intensity of ambition. Um, And I think maybe part of that is driven by when you see your home burn behind you. Um, and you feel like there's nothing to go back to, perhaps there's all the more, all the more reason to kind of, um, you know, rush forward into the unknown. If you're just joining us, I'm Rachel Barenbaum. My guest today is Tanya James, and you're listening to Check This Out on New Hampshire Public Radio. We're talking about the new novel, Loot. Okay, so we have this character, a boss. He's arrived in France, and he's found this childhood friend slash crush, <laughs> right, Jean, and they are reunited. And miraculously, they find out that they know where this tiger is, Tipu's tiger is, that um, 
you know, uh, Abbas had made all those years ago. And so then they start out, out on this quest to find it again. And Lady Selwyn has it. Um, so how did you think about this part of the quest, right, and, and finding this tiger? Why include this part? Well, actually, I when I first was thinking about this novel, I had only conceived of it as a as a heist novel that takes place in an English country house. Those two things really intrigued me. I really I really enjoy an English country house novel. And I thought, why can't I do that? Um, and I also really enjoy a heist novel. So I thought there will be two characters who are going after this object that is owned by a wealthy English woman. But then as I was sort of thinking about this, the more I tried to think about these characters, I, I, was, I kept thinking about what would drive two people to risk their reputation, their life on, on getting this one object. And that's how I sort of thought about, well, it must you know, it must have certain significance for the artist himself or themselves. And I, I, I kept that, that is what had me kind of moving backwards and backwards in time and going all the way to the beginning of how he even got this job in the first place. But, but this, this, this third part of the novel is really where it started conceptually for me. I love that. It started out as a heist. I love it. All right. Because they do get there and they're thinking, you know, maybe we'll steal it. Maybe we can bargain for it. Maybe we can, you know, there are different ways we can do this. Um, so they encounter Lady Selwyn and they encounter Rum. So tell us about Rum. So Rum is um, a steward to Lady Selwyn. Like he's sort of her right-hand man in business. And um, he he actually served her husband in um, in India but the, her husband was the one who got who was standing at the prize committee and got her that Tipu's tiger. But he dies um, pretty soon after that, and so Rum, in in, cer- in a certain way, he kind of replaces um, Colonel Selwyn. He brings the tiger to her. He kind of nurses her through her depression and her um, grief, and ends up being the person she trusts the most um, in work and in personal life. And so he's very very protective of her. And he is very, very suspicious of these two people who have come. Um, it's basically Abbas and Jean who have come uh, with several objects they want to trade. And, and sort of they're trying to insinuate themselves into her life in an attempt to kind of swindle the, the Tipu's tiger um, out, of her, um, out of her possession. But then he asks at some point, are you, are you an artist or a con artist? Yeah. So what is the difference? He kind of gets all the good lines, I feel like. He kind of, <laughs> yeah, I felt like his voice was really fun to write because he, it's that suspicion and cynicism and kind of um, cheekiness. I feel like he, he gets some, some good jabs in there. But also this question of what is art comes up again, right? It, what is art? I felt like that's what he was really asking. Um, and he catches a boss as he sneaks in to see the tiger. And a boss is looking for his signature and Monsieur Dulez's signature. And again, we get to this big theme that you know I love. How do you leave your mark? So can we talk about that signature? I mean, I thought about this a lot, like how, I, the, the, you know, to me, this desire to leave a mark is I, I personally don't have that. I don't, I don't have, and it might be I'm a product of the time in which I live, and it's, you know, we forget about things that happened, you know, two days ago. I can't, you know, it's just things, news cycles through so quickly. I was thinking about how that desire, though, you do want to make a thing 
you know, as an artist, it's, it is an aspirational thing to make a thing that lasts. And, but sometimes when I'm looking at a painting, I don't, I, I almost feel like the, you know, you can see signs of the artist in the work that are not, that are more, far more personal to me than the signature itself or knowing this person's name. So like, if you're looking at a painting that has like a little, you know, a little kind of, um, like a little bit of paint that's dabbed in a way that you can see the texture. When you see the cut of, in Tipu's Tiger, you see, you can kind of see the cut that's made that sort of is maybe a little imperfect or something. Those kind of things to me feel to, feel to me as personal as, as the, as the signature itself. And so, um, I, I, I don't know, I was thinking names too, though, names, I, I, I just feel like, um, there's something very, human about wanting to be remembered and wanting your name to be remembered. Um, and there's so many kind of works of art where, you know, I was looking at a Turkish rug the other day and I could see the woman had stitched her name into the corner. I find that really beautiful and kind of mysterious and, and sort of universal, that desire to, to be remembered. Yeah. But um, what was fascinating was that Ram, nobody had noticed the names. They were so well hidden in the tiger. And then it's later on, Ram decides when this tiger is eventually taken to a museum, right? The person who donates it, the, the you know, man who eventually inherited it and had nothing to do with the making or anything else, right? You see a plaque for him and his generosity in the museum. And it's Ram who decides to put the names of the artists on there in the end. So can you talk about that, too? I mean, right, who gets their name on that plaque in the museum? Yeah, and and it's just, to me, kind of interesting in that moment. It just comes down to one person's choice. Um, I And, and it's, I, I, I think about the way, not only like the names that are presented, but also... Um, but also um, the kind of information that's on the placard, the way in which these things are framed. Like, you know, Tipu's Tiger is in the V&A Museum, and it's sort of sitting alongside other things that were, you know, taken from the siege, like Tipu's robe and Tipu's gun. And so then with that context, we think of it as a, as a sort of artifact of um, the siege. But do we think of it as a work of art? I'm not sure. I, I think, you know, what if it had been, what if it was, you know, displayed next to other, you know, works works of art or art objects or wood carvings? Or, and then, and how does that change the conversation? And how does that change the way we're looking at this object? Not just like a kind of ethnographic um, artifact, but like as an actual um, work of art. And so... I think that putting someone's name there does kind of add to that idea that this was someone's masterpiece or this was someone's, you know, the product of someone's imagination. And, um, and I think, right. I, I mean, I kept thinking, I kept thinking, what if we put this next to like a Matisse, right? Or a Chagall, something that is this accepted, you know, European, you know, narrative of what is beautiful art. You know, if we put this tiger there, how differently would we look at it? That's, that's really, that's just, that's really what it's all about to me, the way in which we, these small choices kind of reframe the way we're thinking about the object itself and the people who made it. Yeah. All right, we're going to be right back because I have a million more questions for you, Tanya. I'm Rachel Barenbaum. You're listening to Check This Out on NHPR. We're going to take a short break. Um, I will be back very soon with my guest, Tanya James, and we are talking about her new novel, Loot.
Welcome back. I'm Rachel Barenbaum. You're listening to Check This Out on NHPR. My guest today is Tanya James, and we are talking about her new novel, Loot. Tanya, I want to go back into this question of what is art, what is knowledge. Um, And one of my favorite themes and ideas that you touch on here is the automaton. And um, I thought that some of the themes here, one of the reasons why this book works so well is because we are not just stuck in Mysore, India, right, and the thinking back then in the 1790s. They are actually very relevant and very modern. Um, And we have Tipu Sultan himself um, who is saying, right now in Europe, our automata are being constructed to do things beyond your wildest dreams. There's one automaton in the form of a Turk seated before a chessboard, able to win against any human opponent that challenges him. There's another automaton from the past century, a duck that could both eat from the ground and then digest and excrete exactly as a duck in flesh. So talk about that connection to AI today. Mm. Well, that you're reading that has me thinking about the way in which the, um, I think the most disturbing thing about AI is the way in which tech, you know, there's this kind of race to kind of compete and to kind of, um, you know, disregarding the harm that, you know, AI can do just this. We have to be first. We we just have to do it. There's our hands are tied because we can't have a kind of moral consciousness about this because we have to, we have to um, get ahead of everybody else. And so I, I this have just listening to you read about Tipu. He was a very he was really a visionary um, in terms of no understanding how technology was going to the, be the thing that um, allows. Mysore to compete and India really to compete on the world stage and and to prevent Mysore from being swallowed up into other colonial powers. Um, but there's something about that competitive aspect of it that has me has me thinking about the way in which we talk about AI these days and the way in which development seems to be just be getting away from us purely because out of ego, I guess. But also, um, you know, AI, we see these advancements in small places where we don't even recognize maybe it's there. And here you cloak them in the guise of toys, right? And we see this so that it's sort of sneaking up on us. And I thought that that is what we see happening today as well. Um, so, you know, I wanted to know if you could talk about how you thought about that, right? You know, were you directly thinking about today's AI and and how it's sort of hidden slowly coming up? Hmm. I really wasn't thinking about it. It's only been in interviews that had sort of come up because I, you know, started writing this novel so long ago and the AI conversation wasn't even, was probably around, but not the way it is today. I did think a lot about um, mechanization and how the fear that automatons might replace you know, craftsmen and art artisans, I think that fear was actually legitimate. It was very, you know, based in reality. You know, there were automatons trying to be, there were people developing automatons at the time to replace weavers or, you know, which, which was, there was a lot of fear and a lot of alarm about it. And, um, and that, that felt to me very present and, um, it, I mean, it feels to me now like a, like a conversation we have every, you know, uh, every every so often, where you know, it's just this fear of humans being replaced. At, that was very that was common then, and it, as it is common now. So you mentioned that you started this novel so long ago. When did you start it? I think I started it in two thousand. I want to say two thousand eighteen. At least I started thinking about it in two thousand eighteen. 
I think so many people think books all of a sudden just come out of writers. <laughs> right. I wish. <laughs> yeah. It's a long, long process. Um, so I wanted to ask you, how personal is this novel? I think, um, I feel like the aspects of the artist are very personal to me. Um, the development of Abbas, how he comes into an understanding of what he wants to be and what he wants to do. I am not nearly as ambitious as he is, but I, I think I probably was when I was his age, so in my 20s maybe. I just remember that that hunger, that desire to make and to do and to learn. And I, and I also, you know, understand that, you know, through his relationship with his mentor, how much he needs that mentor. And I don't think I had a mentor in that way that was so kind of huge in my life. But I, I remember looking at people who were kind of mentors to me and who were farther ahead than me and just kind of just this, you know, adoration of what they were doing, but also this like, almost like a, a, not a, almost like a greed, like, like I need, I want what you have. I think, I think he, he's thinking that Abbas at one point in the novel. Isn't that a line in the book? Yes. I want what you have. Yes. 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 That felt very personal to me. Like I could remember that feeling of like, I, I wish, you know, I could have what you have. But of course you don't understand at that point that that desire, you never actually reach the, you know, as an artist, you, you you never actually reach that moment of like, I have it, I got it, I don't need anything else. I mean, maybe you do, and I haven't gotten there yet. But it's sort of that that sense of always wanting that, that at least for me, makes me want to make something else. So, yeah. And how about bringing the history of this time, the colonialism, right, the story from Mysore? How personal was that to you, too? Well, it's personal in the sense that it's um, part of my history, but I don't know that it's I don't know that I feel I felt that personal about it. I'm from my parents were born in Kerala, which is uh, a, a state that's you know near near um, Karnataka and Mysore, but not you know I I think there were there was times in my research where I was reading where Tipu Sultan was having confrontations with um, kingdoms in Kerala. I think that what for me it was somewhat personal because they were you know my own family members were telling me about their own kind of uh, feelings about Tipu, which, were, which weren't entirely positive um, because of this, you know, history, you know, from 200 years ago, they still, they still can cite that. Um, but I, I think for me, I, I didn't feel personal. I didn't feel like, yeah, I, it, I wouldn't say it was personal for me, but it was just my, my interests, my personal interests were more thematic than, um, you know, situational. Yeah. So I also wanted to ask you about this, the history that you've included in here. We touched very briefly on this idea that you're really building a mythology and there were big holes, right, in some of the historical records that you got to fill in with fiction, because this is fiction at the end of the day. Um, how much did you allow yourself leeway? Like sort of how lenient were you with yourself versus really looking for every little historical fact and detail? Sort of how did you think about that balance while writing this book? Well, I thought so I all the major kind of historical events I wanted to stick to the exact timings I wanted to stick as closely as possible to those things they felt to me like tent bowls that I needed in order to be able to play like you I needed some kind of border to set around myself some kind of boundary and then I can play within those boundaries um and the characters themselves I was able to kind of that was more where my imagination was coming from. Um, and with, you know, Tipu Sultan, I didn't have a whole lot of 
information about him. I had, you know, biographies that were written, you know, much later after he died. And, um, and the only, actually the one thing I had was this really interesting book called The Dream Journal of Tipu Sultan or The Dream Register, where he was recording his dreams. And that to me was a really kind of way for me to play with this character who was a real character and um, I, I just had to think of him as a completely different character from the person who existed. I never felt like I need to be true to, you know, our our conception of who this character is, which is different from, you know, fictionalizing a character like Abraham Lincoln, where you have so many speeches and so many records about him. So the the, again, like the lack of, you know, speeches and records about what Tipu Sultan was really like was kind of helpful for me in, in conceptualizing a character who is a sort of maybe a more extreme version um, and a kind of more comic version than the person who existed. Yeah. So before we switch gears into me asking you more about like the writing process, because right? I have a lot of listeners who like to know about, right, how to become an author type questions and, and that kind of thing. There's one big question that I really want to ask you about. Um, and it's this phrase, you talk about it, you use it a few times in the book, you talk about it in the author's note at the end. Um, and you write, we are here because you were there. And I love that phrase because um, it makes me immediately think about this question, what are you, right? Um, which I think is, com is coming up more and more often. People are saying, why do you need to know? I am human. <laughs> what are you? I am human, right? Why are you writing this story? Like, right? And, and, you know, sort of what is Abbas doing in France? You would get that question. And I love this answer. We are here because you were there. Can you talk about that phrase and that theme in the book? Yeah, that line is actually from, I think, from a Sri Lankan um, writer and activist, um, British Sri Lankan. His name is, I want to say S. Amalavner, I think. Um, he, I, I love this idea. I love the idea of putting that directly in the novel. I thought of doing it as an epigraph, but I just think the story of colonialism, we think of it as being finished. We think of colonialism, at least I'd always thought of colonialism, specifically Indian, the Indian side of that story to be done in 1947 at partition. But the story of colonialism, at least the effects, if you think of the effects of colonialism, are ongoing, um, particularly because of migration. And colonialism is responsible for the mass, you know, migrations all over the world of South Asians being in, <laughs> I mean, I can't think of a place where we don't. We, we are not. So I, I loved this idea of the novel, which is historical and taking place in the past, speaking to our present. And I, I love historical fiction that does that, where it is, where it is a product of its time, but it's also a product of, of the contemporary moment. If you're just joining us, I'm Rachel Barenbaum. My guest today is Tanya James, and you're listening to Check This Out on New Hampshire Public Radio. We're talking about Tanya's new novel, Loot. All right, Tanya, we're going to switch gears a little bit, and I want to ask you more of the writerly questions, as I like to call them. So um, you are a professor in an MFA program. Could you tell us about your role there? Sure. Um, I'm an associate professor at George Mason University's MFA program. Um, yeah, I've been, I've been there for about seven years. Wow. So you can talk to us about the writing process as a professor and as a published author. So I know my listeners are going to have all kinds of questions on this front. Um, a lot of people who listen to the show are writers, aspiring writers, and they want to know. Um, so talk to me about the process with your editor a little bit and the fact checking. How careful were facts checked for this book? 
I'm sure they were very well checked. Um, I, 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 I love the process of, I love the kind of production process. It's, um, it's just so gratifying and, and very humbling to know how many people are spending time on your work and trying to get it to finished form. And I'm sure I don't actually realize how many people are working on it or putting eyes on it and putting their time on it, but I'm into it. Um, my process with my editor, we've been together, this is our fourth book together, and she's, you know, wonderful in many ways, but one of the biggest ways I find she she's so she's so um she's so instructive um in terms of structure and in terms of momentum and and urgency and this is something i talk to my students about this this question of urgency but you know saying it is much easier than doing it and realizing where you're losing you know these things and 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 just also urgency in the narrative yeah and just also being aware of well if i'm if I, just being intentional about those choices and where the momentum is slowing, is that what I want? And if that's what I want, what am I giving the reader in place of that? Um, and because that's just something I I enjoy as a writer and as and oftentimes as a reader, I like a book that that moves um, and that is aware of and intentional about its sort of movement. And so um, she was my editor, Jordan Pavlin was uh, asked a lot of questions about. Sometimes I would move into a different um, point of view. And she would just question when I was doing that, that is that, is that, am I sure about um, taking the attention away from a boss at this moment or taking attention away from the central kind of like um, sort of through line um, at this moment? And it was helpful. I was, just, I was just about to ask you about point of views because you have so many point of views in here and it works beautifully. So how, how much did you go back and forth about on POV's point of views with your editor? I think um, the... We really, really just go back and forth once because she's just questioning and making sure that's what I want. And if it is, then fine. And, you know, that's she was she's very kind of um, she's sort of respectful about that, that making it be the book that I want it to be. But um, I did take her advice toward the end where there was, you know, for example, there's a smaller character named Middle John. And I, I wrote this sort of two to three page kind of like memories and food memory to do with a pear tree. And I just, I just was so attached to it, but I completely saw what she was saying that it was at this point when the novel is sort of funneling towards something, it was taking away from that, that funneling and sort of, you know, kind of sending the reader down a different path. And I, I, you know, there were, there were multiple things like that where she was suggesting um, streamlining. And there were some that I pushed back on and um, specifically to do with Lady Selwyn because I I really I really just had so much fun writing that character and I found myself surprised by how much I came to care for her and be interested in her, even as she was sometimes saying and doing toxic things or disturbing things. Love that. So what advice do you have for new writers or aspiring writers? Well, I always, I, I feel like this is, again, advice that I have to remind myself of and, and try to think about, um, um, which is to pay attention to what you pay attention to. Because I think sometimes we can, the, the noise around what other people are writing, what other, what is popular, what is trending can be deafening. And 
all all you really have is your unique kind of idiosyncratic perspective. Like your obsessions are not going to be the same as my obsessions, but it's your enthusiasm for your subject and your passion for your subject that will kind of define the work. Um, and so that's my main thing is just kind of pay attention to your own, uh, pay attention to what you're paying attention to. If you're just joining us, I'm Rachel Barenbaum. You're listening to Check This Out on NHPR. My guest today is Tanya James, and we are talking about her new novel, Loot. And right now we are getting some advice for new writers, aspiring writers. So can you talk about process? Do you have advice for how you actually write a novel? Well, I my own process is very um, kind of methodical. Um, and so sometimes that's good. And sometimes, you know, I, I think it's helpful for me to just be like, this is my goal in terms of the amount, number of words I'm, I'm going to do to do a day and to sort of be... Could you be specific? Because people love Yeah. I mean, I, I, have a, I have a sort of, it's not a spreadsheet, but I have a kind of a chart and I, I write like the number of words uh, that I did that day and what I actually worked on and what I'm going to work on tomorrow because I think that that's another thing for me. Like I somehow have a goldfish memory these days and I cannot remember what I ate for breakfast yesterday. So I have to be very specific about what is the possibility for tomorrow. And that just kind of doesn't, that doesn't waste time in the morning. I also start with reading. I always start with something that seems to be share some kinship in terms of tone or something with, with what I'm working on before I start writing. And then I feel like the other thing that I want to do more of that has always helped me is walking and get a, getting away from the computer and working in the notebook rather than the screen. But um, those are those are kind of the ways I move through the process. And for people who come to you and say, should I get an MFA? Should I apply for an MFA? How do you answer that? I um, would say that it, I, I think that first of all, I advise them that if you're going to apply, um, go to places that are going to fully fund you. Um, and I also think it just, it's just such a big question. I mean, I think what I can, all, what I can say is what M the MFA gave me was um, not necessarily learning how to write, but learning how to talk about writing and how to talk about other books that I love, or but I didn't have the, the grammar to talk to understand why, and what I am starting to do well. But it, but really, I I think that is so important because at, after you leave, reading is going to be so much of your you know so much of what instructs you in terms of your taste and what you like and why you like it, and so kind of identifying the language and the way to talk about these things is. It, it will help you, you know, for years and years to come. But it doesn't have to come from an M MFA program. So, it, you know, it just depends on your temperament and what, where you learn successfully. And my last question for you is you've seen a lot of students come through your classroom. What are some of the mistakes and some of the, um, you know, good choices that new writers are making as they are looking for agents and trying to get started? Um, I think one of the mistakes, which is a mistake that I made and yet I, I turned out okay, but, um, is, is impatience. And I say that with f full understanding of what it's like to be out of an MFA program and seeing other people publish and, you know, wanting to, wanting to, you know, be accredited in some way as a real writer, whatever that means. And, um, but I think, 
I think there's, there's a healthy kind of impatience. There's a healthy kind of like impatience that drives you to kind of do more. But I think there's an impatience that kind of is, is also limiting. And I, and one of the mistakes I see too, is when people kind of come in with a novel and they, that's their entire goal for the entire time they're there is to just get that novel to be perfect. And I just think an MFA program should be about playing and experimenting and trying as much as you can try different things. Thank you so much for joining me today. It's been a real pleasure speaking to you, and I look forward to staying in touch and reading a lot more in the future. Thank you so much for the time and, you know, just these wonderful questions. I really, really appreciate it. You've been listening to Check This Out, a new literary series, which is a partnership between New Hampshire Public Radio and the Howe Library in Hanover, New Hampshire. We dive deeply into the works of emerging and diverse authors you may not have discovered yet. I'm Rachel Barenbaum, and I'll be back next week at this same time with more conversations. Our producers today are Jared Jenish, Megan Coleman, and NHPR's Emily Quirk. The Howe Library Director is Ruby Simon. NHPR's Program Director is Emily Quirk. The show is sponsored by the Jack and Dorothy Byrne Foundation and the Howe Library Corporation. Thank you for listening. I'll see you next time.